Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship to help you harness your own inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Angela Anthony, founder of Scoutable. And Scoutable is a platform of award-winning game technology that pairs job candidates with employers. Developed by Harvard and Stanford scientists, it translates in-game actions into real-world superpowers such as creativity, curiosity, and grit, all those things that we love to see. And prior to Scoutable, Angela worked with the White House at the National Economic Council, studying, you guessed it, labor markets. She's worked in investments with Goldman Sachs Sachs and Virgin. And Angela is through and throughout academic who has attended Harvard for a doctorate in law, MBA, and originally a BA in psychology. And I've had the pleasure to meet Angela in April in Miami and build a friendship and hang out at VCon. And again, in June here up at NFT New York. And she has a ton to tell us about hiring, the labor market, and a little-known investor named Mark Cuban, who told her to start a company. So let's get to it. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks for having Still me. Still with us? I'm here. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Look, looks like we lost video, but we'll keep going there um, for, for a moment here. And it, it's always fun when I get to have folks on the show that I know personally and we built relationships. And, and you're just awesome. I just want to applaud you for your generosity of your time and your friendship. Oh, well, I feel the same. <laughs> and, and if anybody wants to check out in our VCon coverage, I have a special exclusive first time only. We call it Escalator Sessions with Angela. So if you want to check out that fun. So it's actually your second time on the show, technically. I guess that's true. To, uh, yeah. If, I was uh, very happy to beta test <laughs> right. that segment. <laughs> it was. It was It was a little bit of improv there. And, and we had fun. And, and maybe we'll do it again in, in Miami in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm down. We'll have Basil it. Sessions. Is it Basil or Basil? What I, are the local? I, is it is it our Basil? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to go with Basil there. So <laughs> let's kind of jump into your story here and and let's get to it. Um, I'm not sure how well known this is, but to my understanding, you actually created a company, a gaming based company, prior to Scatable, right? Called Beanstalk. Yeah. Um, it was um using games to incentivize real world environmental behavior. Interesting. And that obviously builds on your pedigree and your upbringing and your schooling. Well, not so much upbringing, but tell us a little bit about those early lessons from that first company that really helped to inform uh, some smart decisions when building out Scatable, which we'll dig into. Yeah. So I think it was kind of an invaluable education in all the things uh, to do wrong at a startup. Because I think primarily, um, one, especially MySpace, which is like games for, they're called serious games, but they're like games to uh, enable real world change or real world, world um, you know, uh, interaction, real world um, 
positive, uh, positive change. So what was so interesting about that game that we built there was that it was really, um, it was a game where you would kind of log your environmental actions as you did them during the day um, and get these credits. So you'd get, um, you know, points and, and that were convertible to like different prizes and, and money and things like that. So it was kind of like a tokenized now in like today's language, it was kind of like a tokenized um, environmental incentive system. Um, but, uh, right. But it was actually like kind of back in the day before people like really carried their phones and took pictures of everything. So now it's hard to remember, but at that time it was like, you know, it, that was kind of um, a, a strange interaction. That was like a, a big behavioral change that we were trying to incentivize. So a lot of ways it was kind of before it's time. Um, but, uh, the biggest thing we learned through that is that, you know, taking pictures of everything you do, do, do during the day, especially like when you recycle a bottle and stuff, it's really not that fun. Right. It's like, it's no. not really a game. Right. Um, and so through it's that experience, like a chore. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like homework. It's kind of like a, right. a whole day of homework and you get paid for it. So that's kind of the incentive, kind of like the token models. But um, yeah, it was really not fun. And through, but through that experience, we talked to so many people in the serious game space, which were a lot of academics that were building games for different, like, you know, serious purposes. And all the games sucked. Like they were all so boring and mm. so um, counter to not really a game. No, they were they were just so counter to the principles and game mechanics that make people play games for fun, right? People invest their free time to play games because they draw on so many of the like just natural um, you know incentives that we have and and um, and just the pleasure of it. And so when we did this, um, so this time around, we were building a game uh, for Scoutable that was so prevalent because there were so many, you know, this is a very science heavy game. Um, and so there were so many voices in the room that wanted to make like a really boring, uh, you know, academic type game. And it was so powerful that we'd already had the experience gone down that road and like knew not, what not to do. So it's interesting. Do you consider, let's take it up a notch here. Do you consider that, that, company in the project a failure? No, I don't think it's a failure. How do you rationalize it in your head? Yeah, how do you how do you think about that? How do you put that into context? For anyone out there with early companies that fail or or don't get to the level that you expect them to, you know, how do you frame that? You know, actually to be to be fully transparent, at the time I did feel like it was a failure. Now in retrospect, because I've used those learnings so powerfully, like it feels like Mm -hmm. that was such an accelerator for the thing that I actually ended up like kind of building my career on. But, uh, but at the time it felt extremely difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's almost, it's almost like one of those cliche things you see all over LinkedIn and social media too. When, you know, when early founders, when they have those first failures, it's, of course it's detrimental at that moment, your time, your energy, your expectations. But now, you know, years later, you could take a look back at that. So I want to hit the rewind button for a second and just talk a little bit about your early experience, specifically at, at Virgin and Goldman Sachs, so those formative years for you. You know, looking back on it now, what would you say is one of those, you know, tough lessons learned the hard way that, again, looking back on it in retrospect, like, thank God I went through that. Thank God I had that experience because it really helped form, you know, who you are today as an individual and as an entrepreneur. So I think most of the things that I, you know, tried and the jobs that I kind of experimented with prior to startup life were were really attempts to um, understand if a certain type of role or a certain type of um, company was really like fitting the um, 
my purpose. And, you know, we could talk a little bit more about that. But um, so kind of all of those opportunities were really at the intersection of social impact and business. Um, and so at the Virgin, at Virgin, I was at the Virgin Foundation um, doing social impact investing or, you know, grant investing. And then at, um, at Goldman, I was really learning about the fundamentals of like, you know, hardcore finance. Um, and yeah, what I learned about those experiences is just kind of what I was really looking for and also just kind of how I operate in a, um, how I can optimize my, uh, sort of like, um, my efforts, uh, in, uh, in the working world. Um, I think a big thing was culture. So really at, um, you know, at the foundation, and I had done a lot of like nonprofit foundation type work because, you know, generally right. I've always been interested in, you know, social impact and policy and, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, and I found that environment um, and, you know, not to dock this specific environment at all, because it's very indicative of every nonprofit environment that I've personally worked in. Um, but it just, people weren't hungry. Like it wasn't like, it mm. was like a very... Um, it was kind of like a sleepy environment. And I found that like culture kind of the antithesis that, of, yeah. of startup world. Yeah. So it really just like sucked my energy out. And so that kind of like feels is really important to being able to like bring out your best self. Cause there's some people that love that environment and startup world would stress them out so bad. They wouldn't be productive. Um, no but for me personally, like I am so hard charging and driving, it would like get on people's nerves. I feel like I was like, you know, I was like just over, overdoing stuff, you know? And I wanted to be in an environment where that is, um, where that's, uh, appreciated. <laughs> and, and, and it's, and it's so true too. I mean, I have this conversation, you know, in, in my day job as a, as a recruiter too, when I talk to candidates about those early jobs, I say, even though it didn't work out, even though you're not there anymore, think about what you learned there. You learned the most important thing about those early jobs is learning what you don't like the, the, the functions of your job, the day to day, maybe that industry. Maybe you decide to pivot. And in your case, you understand that the culture really didn't jive with your personality and, and your drive and what you yeah. want it to be. But I want to take one more step back and let's talk about another culture. What was it like working at the White House? How the heck did that happen? How did you, how did you fall into that? Um, yeah, so that was actually like pretty intentional. So I, um, I went to law school after business school. Um, and while I was at um, Harvard Law, I was working on the research behind Scoutable. Man, I'm sorry, did you, did you just drop something? Did you just drop something on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be proud of that too. I mean, I could drop three, but I, I'll, I'll yeah. stop. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> we love um, it. no, but but I, I bring that up because you know those professors had actually come from the White House, and mm -hmm. so I was working with two professors, one of whom had been you know the like you know Secretary of Treasury, and the other one who had been the budget czar, if you will, under Obama, and so they actually like helped sponsor and like oversee my research, um, that, you know, ultimately became scoutable later on. Uh, and so they actually, um, recommended me to go to the white house and actually enact a lot of the research that I was doing in the policy world, which is really where the idea started. Um, the whole idea behind scoutable started as a policy solution. And so that was my first time getting to work in policy and actually going to the Obama administration and, uh, and getting to work at the national economic council. Interesting. And what was one of those key takeaways from your experience, you know, at the White House from a cultural perspective, from a workflow, from just, you know, working with the government? I mean, what was what were some of those things that you really walked away with? Geez, that I didn't really expect that. Yeah. So it was interesting. I had again, I'd never worked in policy before, but I went to law school wanting to work in the government. Like that was kind of the goal because I did I did um actually my experience with the environmental startup taught me that um 
the actually the thing that was missing from that concept was some sort of central organizing body that can actually um, dole out the incentives on a large scale, a national scale, a global scale, et cetera. And who's that central coordinating body? It's the government, right? It's taxes, it's um, you know, policy, it's regulation, it's all of these different systems, all these different levers that you can pull in the you know, game mechanics of society. And so that was really like my interest in going into law and that my interest in policy as well. So what I found um, working at the White House, working in policy, was that that is very true. Like you can use the spotlight of the government and the White House, especially to scale solutions nationally, like in very rapid time. Um, and that was extremely exciting. And there are parts of it that's, that are also very entrepreneurial, like actually getting a policy proposal, like, you know, through the White House and, you know, up to actually getting enacted um, is kind of like a, it's a, a, like a, a process. Yeah, it's a process of like pitching this idea, showing your support for it to your investors, but their investors are not money. They are political, like, you know, support. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, I saw, I was like, this is very cool. This is very much like a startup environment, just, you know, kind of in a different sphere. But what I also learned is that policy has almost no tolerance for failure. So there's no real experimentation that can be done there. Right. Like a lot of times, unless, white, you, right? unless you have proof that it works already, then, you know, then you can scale that solution, but you can't like develop new things. Like you can't develop new tech and like, you know, in, in the policy world. And so what I re- figured out, like through my experience was that, you know, very much for, for the space that I cared about and the research that I had done, there was a technology missing that mm. needed to be invented. And we really looked all across the, you know, HR space and across the like, you know, um, the science space. And we found nobody that had actually developed this technology yet. Cause that was actually my original thesis is let's go find who built this thing that I'm proposing and scale that solution nationally, but it didn't exist yet. And then, so that's why, you know, um, Mark, uh, Mark Cuban came to me and said, Angela, let's build this thing. And I said, it's, it's so let's cool. Go do it. <laughs> it's so cool. So, I mean, so the origin story is really the work you did with the, with the National Economic Forum. It really fueled it. And I love I love the origin story. So let's dig into it. Let's let's hear this origin story of, of, of Scoutable and the the journey that you've been on over the last couple of years. Sure. Um, so, like I mentioned, the whole concept behind Scoutable really started as several years of research that I led Um at Harvard Law School and you know some of the work I did at Harvard Business School as well, we're really studying the problem of, of hiring um, from a public policy perspective. Um, and it was really driven by this, um, these findings that I was finding on kind of our success rates in the country in terms of being like accurately um, utilizing people. So if you look across the US economy, more than half of hires fail. That was so jaw-dropping to me. It's a huge, unnecessary number. It was crazy. I was like, how can we, despite all of the time and resources and insanely smart people at all of our companies nationwide, have worse outcomes than if we randomly flipped a coin? I just couldn't (laughs) believe it. shouldn't be like that. I couldn't believe it. And And I also just felt like, why aren't we talking about this? This is like an epidemic of insane proportions. Like, why aren't we talking about this? 
And so I was like, I really want to figure out what's going on here because I can't just sleep on these numbers. This is like, this is a crisis. And so we started digging into that. And the craziest thing, this was like so mind blowing. Every research study that's ever been done on predicting future success on the job has shown the same criteria is the single most accurate hiring criteria known to exist, the single most unbiased hiring criteria known to exist, and the sole cause of around 90% of all failed hires. Yet, that data is not in the hiring process. No. Shocking. Like, absolutely mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Um, so we can dig into that in a second, but kind of just to round up the story. So I was writing, um, writing up all of this research, um, trying to figure out like, you know, how do we actually change this? Um, and, you know, I was proposing that a technology solution could actually like fill in the gap on the da- missing data set um, and allow, right. you know, scale on the solution. But, you know, then I went, I was, you know, I was going to policy. So then in the policy world, um, when I was at the White House, I was, you know, kind of finishing up this book that I was writing on this topic and really trying to figure out like, you know, how do we, where, where is this tech? Like who's built it and let's, you know, let's find it and actually utilize it. Let's source it out. Right. Um, And then realize that no one had built the tech. And so honestly, I was just like, so sad for the country. <laughs> I was, I was like, there's this gotta is, be a solution. I was like, this what is are we gonna so, do about this? <laughs> so insane. And nobody is talking about it. Nobody's looking at it. Nobody knows why um, they're unhappy in their jobs. What percentage of people are unhappy in their jobs? 85% of people. It's, it's an like, insane the number. numbers just are mind blowing. So um, that was kind of the, like where I was, I was trying to figure out like, you know, I was going to write this book and hopefully someone would pick up the baton and, um, you know, build this tech and go, you know, save the world. Uh, a lot of that was also because I was very burnt out from the first startup. <laughs> so it hadn't even crossed my mind really to, uh, to actually like, you know, build, build and, it. Um, and when yeah, did that light, how'd that light bulb go off? Was there a little birdie chirping in your ear that said, maybe you should put that book down and let's build this? Yeah, yeah, there was. And his name's Mark Cuban. So so when Mark learned about my research, he came to the White House for um, an entrepreneurship summit I was helping to um, helping to organize. And we just really hit it off. He wanted to know everything about my research once he found out what I was working on. And it was just kind of one of those like, you know, moments where, you know, he saw something in me, he was really obsessed with this problem, too. And by the end of that day, he was really like Angela. You're not a wonk. You're an entrepreneur. He's like, you need to build the solution, and I wow. want to fund it. How did how did how did that? Let's take a step back for a second. There are a couple things. One of the things, and 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 I had the opportunity because of you to meet Mark in person uh, last April, and it was awesome, and it was super cool. Um, but he has something that that makes him special, and it's a superpower of in, in being so inquisitive and a problem solver and putting those pieces together. But the other piece is that he could see something in people that they may not see in themselves at that time. And that's what he did with you. Take us to that moment when like, you're like, holy shit. And like the goosebumps and the light bulb went off and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to do this again. I'm jumping back in. I got to do this. Was it like, was it like that? Or was it like, let me sleep on this for a minute. Oh yeah. No. So (laughs) actually the craziest thing was, you know, when Mark said this, I actually said, no, I was like, Mark, Hmm. I did a startup. It was really hard. And so here are the five reasons why I should not do this. And I just listed off the five reasons. But 
what really just floored me about Mark, and I think this is maybe indicative of how he knows my type so well, is I think like we're actually quite similar. Um, he immediately shot down all five of those reasons for the counter argument that was in my own head too. You know, I was like, I was kind of trying to like, you know, put up a wall and he was like, nope. And he said all the reasons. And I was like, wow, those are all the things that I would have also said as my counter arguments. And so I was like, even though we just met, I feel like we've known each other for a million years, you know? Um, And it really made me trust him. And he's been just the absolute best mentor and partner and friend in this journey. Hey, everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B, a B2C, it's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. I want to ask one last question about Mark and close the chapter on that. What, what is that? What is that working relationship like? If we could pull back the curtain a little bit. I mean, this guy has his his hand in so many things. I mean, he's literally changing the face of, of prescription medicine right now, which is so freaking needed and incredible. Amazing. Similar, like it, it, it's in this it's in this path of something that's like it makes common sense. Like the reason prescription drugs are so high is because of shitty companies and inflation and greed. Let's cut all that out, cut the middleman out, and get to the source. But what, but what is that like? I mean, how does this guy? scale his time and his knowledge? What's it like working with him? So that's an open question. Like he's so responsive and so, um, yeah, just he's always there when you need him. And he's like, I have not really experienced that with another investor in the same way. Like he's just always there, always ready to help, always has like great ideas, great feedback. Um, and really only like gets like upset at me for not like interacting with him more, like not, not, uh, not asking him for more stuff or not, um, you know, you know, getting his feedback on stuff. So, um, in a, in a playful way, like he's just, he's just the best. Um, I just think he's like, that's kind of his superpower is that he is like, you know, able to quickly jump between, um, strategies, jump between concepts, jump between like, um, yeah, I, th- I actually think like the switching cost of for him of changing courses in the same like hour switching is like cost. much lower than the usual usual person to put it in my like sex speak. But <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a different caliber. And you know, lastly, on Mark, I mean, what is what is that? What is that to this date with your relationship with him? What what is that lesson learned from Mark Cuban? Oh, so many. Um, yeah, because he has helped me. Um, I think I think fundamentally we're quite similar uh, personality wise, uh, but then he's helped me come out of my um, you know some places where I would second guess myself or overthink. Um, he's always like Angela, you know this. Angela, you got this. Angela, wow. like you know, let's go do this thing. Let's go on stage. Like here, I got CNN's calling you. Like, you know, like so, he's just um, he's been one. He's you know, and I think also it's a, a function of you know he has um, gone through these learning curves too. You know, and so I really feel like. Um, you know, I really feel like 
he can guide me and just also just, you know, I just look up to him in a, in a way that is um, it's just very natural. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and good on you for that. So I want to dig back into Scoutable because the first time I learned about it and I saw you present on stage with Mark and really understand what the product is. And one of the key pieces for me is how it takes bias out of the equation, which I'm a recruiter by trade. This is what I do every day. And it, it's so interesting, too, because and I, and I talked about this recently. Um, early on in my work as a recruiter, one of the firms I was working at, we, we did a, um, uh, a blind bias study to see as recruiters when we're doing sourcing what our bias is. And one of my biases, intentional or not, was if it wasn't a, a familiar looking, we'll call it a familiar looking name to me, if it looked like a foreign name to me, I'd be less inclined to source on that. And I was so happy that this got called to my attention because I wasn't doing it consciously. And it was, it was a small percentage. It wasn't anything over indexing, um, but I was able to course correct. And I think the biggest thing with, with bias and the, unbi- and the training Again, that is understanding what your biases are and being open to it and not taking it so personally and deeply, but recognizing it that, hey, listen, I got to change something in my approach here. How did, let's talk a little bit about the scalable product and the technology and how that really truly removes from the traditional looking at resumes and LinkedIn and profiles. Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing is we actually know resumes and interviews don't predict job success, right? Because we get we use that today and we get more than half of the time uh, we get the higher wrong. Um, so. It's just, it's not in the, the bias that you're talking about, like the unconscious bias or conscious bias or whatever it is. It's actually not really a, um, it's, it's not really a, like, you know, it's not someone trying to be malicious. It's exactly. really just a function of how our brains operate. So our brains take in like all of this, like millions and millions of data points every second. And so we create these filters unconsciously to like, quickly make decisions based on, you know, all of this data. So our heads don't explode. It's how we protect so, ourselves too. It's how we protect ourselves. Exactly. And so that's why, you know, that's why interviews can actually be, and resumes can be so problematic. So the, you know, the bias you're talking about is an extremely common one. There's so much research on it where actually, you know, if um, they did a study where uh, this exact same resume with a, you know, kind of traditionally Caucasian sounding name versus a uh, traditionally African American sounding name, the African American resume got fifty percent less callbacks. Mm-hmm. The exact same resume, right? And so this is just a function of people trying to use this very scant, poor data and try to proxy what their you know assumptions are about um, you know these different people, uh, and it's just inaccurate. It's just bad data, right? Um, Because it's the exact same resume. Uh, So, um, and then when you get to the interviews, guess how quickly we make our decisions in interviews? According to the research. That close is 10 seconds. So in the first 10 seconds, uh, we make a uh, decision and the rest of the interview is basically just confirming that initial decision. It's almost 100%. um, It's confirmation bias. Evaluation, exactly. Um, And what do we learn in the first 10 seconds? We learn socioeconomic signals, gender, age, race, all the things that we don't want to select on. Judgments, judgments. That's that's the data we have in the first 10 seconds and we can't change how our brain operates. And so really what I see as, you know, such a big part of our solution is helping people gate out the bad data and only look at the best data possible. Um, And, you know, it's just been so amazing and wild like that, you know, the difference it makes. Like I can give an example. So kind of how our yeah, I mean, let's, let's actually let's actually 
Like, yeah, let's let's talk about this because I think it's really important here because we've been talking around it a little bit. But I want I want to I want to tell everyone in the audience listening. Let, let's break down you know what Scoutable is and 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 how it works on both sides of the equation from the job seeker and then the, the hiring company. Sure. Um, so, kind of the core technology we built, which our whole you know platform is built around, is the first form of assessment that can measure all of this, you know, the secret hiring criteria, this X factor that I'll, you know, I'll dive into um, for the very first time in hiring. So what, what this umbrella of things that all the research shows is the most predictive and most unbiased is the umbrella of things we call soft skills or psychometric traits or um, personality and cognitive um, abilities. So these traits, you know, are you know two times more predictive than interviews, three times more predictive than work experience, four times more predictive than education level. Like the, you know, the list goes on and on. So, when I saw that when we were doing the research, my big question was because I got my psychology degree. I said, "Well, we have tests that measure this. We've been measuring and quantifying these traits for decades. So why doesn't every company just use the available tests and have wildly predictive job outcomes?" Why not? And the reason is, have you ever taken a personality test, for example? They're awful. Yeah. So, well. Because you, you, you're kind of thinking of what do I want to put down in the answer that I think they want to hear instead of truly the right thing, right? Like whatever you feel internally. It's crazy. Exactly. So the, so the context really matters. So the actual, the crazy thing is that those tests are extremely valid and accurate in an experimental setting. Because then the test taker has no incentive to give the wrong answer. So they actually give very honest, very transparent answers on mm -hmm. these tests, which ask questions like, Adam, are you punctual or leisurely? Uh, at a party, are you a wallflower or do you talk to people? Um, have you ever stolen before? <laughs> so people are actually like but obviously very in a job interview, you want to say what you want them to hear, right? Like if you're putting exactly. the pressure of the context of a job interview, it's going to skew the whole results. And that's exactly what we see. So when you ask those same questions in a competitive context like hiring, everyone scores way above the population norms on the good things and way below the population on the bad things. And so you really get no data at all. But that's the state of the science, or it was. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's really never been an instrument able to measure this most predictive data in the most valuable you know, place uh, in our society, which is hiring. And so that's where I came up with a theory based on my psych research, like lab-based research, that I felt like we could build something that feels like a game that measures all of those, you know, most important criteria without ever asking a self-reported question. Um, and so that was the theory. Uh, and that's, that's what we built. So that's kind of the core tech around Scoutable is a 15-minute immersive, um, you know, kind of like Brilliant. a movie where you're the protagonist. Um, so, you know, it's not like a hardcore shoot 'em up game or something where you need like to have lots of gaming experience. We assume no gaming experience is required, um, but you take this 15 minute, um, you know, interactive adventure. And by the end of it, we show you all of your natural strengths uh, that you may not even know you have yourself. So that was kind of the first, um, that was the, you know, the first milestone was this tool that can unlock the most predictive data in hiring, but also help people understand what they bring to the table for themselves. Love it. It's awesome. And, and, and I had the opportunity to go through it when, when we, when, when I, when we first met in April, I, I went back home and I, and I tried it out and, it, and it's super cool. Um, give us a little state of the union from a couple of perspectives. I'm very interested to know how companies are successfully, you know, adopting this and putting it into practice. And on the flip side of it, what has been some of the pushback as far as adoption? Sure. Um, so 
how we utilize it with companies is that what the game allows us to do is to actually build a very customized predictive model on who to hire for every single company in every single role. How we do that is we just have the existing employees at that company in that role play the game. And then we're able to show hiring managers exactly what's different about the best performers on the team than the average and lower performers on the same team. Um, so for example, and then, and then we go out and scout those people. We go find more people who have that scientific, that set of scientific markers of better performance in this role um, and showcase them to the company and get them hired. Uh, and so one example that uh, was actually one of the first customers where we, you know, when we launched this, um, this, this product, uh, they did this exact process where they had their existing, um, you know, sales team members play the game. Uh, and then what was crazy, and this actually is not uncommon, but theirs was like very, um, very exaggerated. All of their top performers were like clones of each other on a certain subset of traits that we measure, which is exactly what we right. want to see, right? We're seeing like, oh, here's like the blueprint for 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 better performance in this role because it's extremely clear what the top performer profile is. Then we also looked at their bottom performers. And what we found is that their bottom performers were also clones of each other, but had almost no overlap with the top performers in that role. And so what's crazy is that those people got hired for the exact same role. So using resumes and interviews, like you have no no idea whether or not someone's going to be a top or bottom performer. But when you look at the data, it's extremely clear. This is the whole premise of the science. So uh, then it gets more interesting. So then we went out and found um, candidates for this role. Uh, and we found a few people that were like, you know, a, a great fit for the top performer profile. And, you know, one person who was like a clone and also had like, just was there, according to science, that was their hire. And it's super interesting mm-hmm. because we then proposed, you know, this person. We were like, oh, we found you like this amazing, amazing person who's like, just like all your top performers. And it was really funny because you could just feel the resistance. They looked at that person's resume and they said, Something's yeah, not right. <laughs> you know, we haven't had much luck with this kind yeah. of profile. And, you know, in not Bias. so many words, in not so many words, we were talking about demographic differences um, that were, uh, you know, fit. right. And so... It's not, again, it's, I, I think it's, it's not malicious on anyone's part. It's just your experience and how you are, the heuristic you're using mm. on the data, right? And so what I said is, what I said is um, just interview them. Just interview them, even just for our own edification so we can refine the search because, you know, the data is telling us this is your right. person, but we want to know like exactly why Scientific not. purposes. So we said, just interview them. Um, and we we, you know, we gave them one person first, just for a, I, I knew they didn't put in comparison. So, um, so we so then you know they did this interview, and they called me afterward, and they said, Angela, we hired her on the spot. <laughs> bum, ba, da, ba, and I ba, was ba, ba, like, ba, ba. yes, but this is exactly right. this is exactly what we learned through kind of a bit of the journey is that the resistance right. is still quite strong. And so we had a version where we would actually let companies use the technology self-service as an assessment. We realized that like at the end of the day, um, it's very difficult to like not default to your decision-making that you've been doing, um, even though it's not working. Uh, and so what we found is that this iteration where we actually like make the matches, help companies like 
pick who to, to hire has been so wildly successful. And you know, this company said that they typically interviewed eight to 10 people for every one of those headcounts and would sometimes not find anyone they liked. And you know, we found them in, well, two, but yeah. we found them in, in one, and, you know? One, yeah. one and what's great about it too is like all, all the all the ancillary benefits too. I mean, we're not just talking about finding a great hire, but we're talking about re- reducing time to hire, which is incredible in this marketplace, reducing cost to hire. And Absolutely. you know what? There's technology like this that could put people like me out of business. And I'm fine <laughs> with that if it's reducing bias in the market. I mean, it's really, it's really a super high quality product. From a business perspective, you know, where, where are you at now? I mean, what's the next milestone and what's the next hurdle that you guys are, are looking to jump over? Yeah. So from a business standpoint right now, we were just really um, trying to grow our customer base and have all of these different um, sort of examples and um, and stories to help share. Um, yeah, I think what we do, I think the biggest hurdle is just educating the market on the fact that this exists and is right. completely different than how you hire today. Um, even though I think on the, con- on the company side, it doesn't, it shouldn't feel different. It should feel like, hey, you wanted to hire, you told us your requirements, we brought you people. And yeah, your team did a little assessment. But on our side, it's so wildly different than traditional hiring that it's really about helping to spread the word. I love it. And hopefully this show does that too. So so quick question for anyone out there, because I know I have a lot of, of people in, in talent acquisition, HR, people management too. Where would this sit in the process? Would this be, you know, after someone applies and the company, because it's weird, right? Because I would say... Is it right after, right during the application and before it even gets to some, a human making a decision, which would take the bias out of it or someone looking at it and saying, yes, I want to give him the assessment. I would say it's before if you want to do it the right way. No. So we do it at the, we recommend and you know, when we, when we apply it, it's the very first step. And it's for the reason you were just implying where typically the resume screen is the first step and companies cut 75 to 98% of candidates based solely on the resume. But we know the resume doesn't predict job performance. So you actually are making the biggest cut in your funnel based on zero data, based on zero data. And so what happens if you you have people play the game and actually do the assessment as the first step is that there are people in in the funnel that you would have never even looked at their resume who might be the perfect fit for the role. I can share another story on that if you like. (laughs) So smart. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Real quick, please. Yeah, so th- this is one that um, you know has just been very eye-opening for people, and it's one that I love as well. Um, but you know, we had a company hiring for a um, an engineering role, uh, and they had top applicants from you know we did the same process, had their top engineers play the game, and then um, they had applications from you know computer science grads at, at MIT and Stanford and all the you know top schools. Top of the top. But then the number one like person that indexed above everyone else in terms of fit to that company's specific set of like, you know, amazing engineers, uh, was a full-time auto technician who had never gone to college, never even worked in an office before, and had taught himself to code. And they hired him and he ended up being, you know, just an absolute superstar and, you know, leader at the company. There's nothing more I want to see than this technology, not just the technology, but the, the, the thought behind it and the reason behind it really be adopted and, and widespread across the industry. And I absolutely love it. So, Angela, let's, let's bring it home here. But before I do so, um, as somebody who's a thought leader in this space, quick hot take on the current state of, of the labor market right now. When we think about the economy, we think about the great migration, the great recession, the great reallocation, whatever the heck you want to call it. What's your quick hot take on, on the current labor market? 
Yeah, I mean, this is something that I kind of predicted a long time ago is that there's going to be this crisis of one, I think it's a crisis of uh, of purpose in our generation. Like people don't want to just slave away at a job and kind of pay their dues like in previous uh, generations. In our generation, people really care. And, and I'd say Gen Z even more. People really mm-hmm. care about what they're contributing to the world and making the best u- utilization of their time and talents because there's so much opportunity now. Like the technology and the internet has opened up all of these worlds of opportunity and side hustles and all of these different things. And so I think that's what's driving this great recession or the great, uh, my great, great uh, what's it called? Great migration, of, resignation. The great resignation. I'm calling it, I'm calling it actually based on what you just said, I'm calling it the great reallocation. Like yeah. we're reallocating where people work by self choice. Well, we we need to reallocate. That's what's yeah, that's our that's our mission. We're we're trying to lead the great real reallocation. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a I, you know. I, I, I love it. <laughs> and Angela, you know, first and foremost, I want I want I want to thank you for your time. Before I bring it home, with my last two questions here, and and having conversations with folks like yourself really just fuel fuel me and everything that I do in this industry and why I do the show. So, what Angela? What is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on daily? Oh, um, hmm. I'd say there's two parts to that. Um, one is something that I really learned from my mother. Um, this is something that was really ingrained in me uh, growing up, but it's that there is absolutely nothing you can't learn. And so I truly believe that. I, so, and that's been a real, like, you know, a real mantra for me, especially in the startup journey where, especially the CEO of a startup, like every six months, your job is completely different. And I'm learning a whole new domain of skill sets because you have to learn it before you can really hire for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I truly believe that. And that's that sort of like growth mindset has really helped me, uh, I think, in, in my path. So yeah, I think there's truly nothing that I can't learn. And I think that's true of most people. It's just whether or not they believe it. Um, and then yeah. the other thing is, um, is actually advice Mark gave, uh, to me at a very, uh, very difficult moment. Um, and he was like, you know, I, I will, I'll save the, the rest of the story, but he was just like, Angela, if anyone could do it, it was you. And I was like, I can do it. If anyone could do it, it is me. And I can do it. You know? And so every time uh, things start to get low, I just start to remember like my mission and my responsibility, the feeling of responsibility for getting this technology out in the world. Awesome. Good stuff. And last but not least, you look back on your life and you look back on your career and what you've built so far. And you think about those tough times, those really hard times when you really had to dig down deep and harness that inner tenacity that all great entrepreneurs have and what Mark, Mark Cuban sees in you. And on the flip side of that, when you want to show gratitude and appreciation for everything you have built and everything that you're building and the difference that you're making in this world. Angela Anthony, what is your focus? What is your compass? What is your North Star in life? So it's actually quite interesting because I think my, my focus and what I am out here in the world to do is to actually contribute my purpose. And I truly feel that Scoutable is it. It's like this combination of things that I'm uniquely good at, things that I deeply, deeply care about, and things that the world needs. And that's actually the entire framework. If you think of that, about those three things, like a Venn diagram, um, strengths, things that you're good at, things that you love, and things that the world needs, that's the entire framework of the entire Scoutable product and the entire Scoutable ecosystem. And we're helping everyone find that intersection. And I truly think yes. my intersection is Scoutable. 
I love it. That's how we do it here, folks. This is what I'm talking about. This is what the show is all about. Angela, I want to thank you for joining me. I want to thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your time. And thank you for what you're doing to make the, the em- employment, labor, whatever the heck you want to call it, what world. we do in this world, <laughs> helping people be in the right jobs, right? Um, I want everyone to find out more. You can check out at scoutable.com. We're going to link it up in the show links. Uh, Angela, where else could folks connect with you? Where could they learn more? Yeah, no, um, scoutable.com is great. Um, and you can also DM me on all of the platforms. I'm just at Angela Anthony everywhere. So um, yeah, I'd love to, love to continue the conversation. And if any employers are interested on the site, you can sign up for the free team assessment and we can actually tr- try out the assessment with your team. Awesome, good stuff. Hang with me one moment here. And everyone listening, this is what the show is all about. This is the good stuff. Bring it back to the roots. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Remember, Follow us on all the social media channels and take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.